What do you wonder? Huh. That's a good question. I wonder a lot about the future. I wonder if I am choosing the right pathway in terms of how I'm living my life. I wonder a lot of stuff. Like, what's out in the universe? With a question, what do you wonder? I mean, we could, we could go really, really deep into this. I wonder how long I'm gonna have on this earth and if I'll accomplish my purpose. I wonder why people complain all the time. I wonder where I'm gonna be at in the next five to 10 years. We both wonder, I think, if, if there's ever gonna be grandchildren coming along. I wonder if my kids are going to have a good life. I wonder how we got here. What do we wonder about him? <laughs> I wonder when he's going to start to lose some weight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wonder. <laughs> So let me ask you, what do you wonder? What do you wonder? We wonder about little things. We wonder about things that probably don't matter, but they're interesting to us. And then we wonder about some big things in life, like what our future holds or, you know, what's going to happen down the road, where we'll end up living, where we'll get a job, you know, what college is going to be like, whatever it may be for you, whatever stage of life you're in. And then we wonder about some things that are not only big, but they're, they're really meaningful, like they're really impactful, like they shape the entire direction and future of your life. We wonder about things like you know, am I living the life I was meant to live? What on earth am I here for? What's my purpose? Am I doing what I should be doing with my life? Am I making any difference? Am I, am I living a life that I'm going to look back at one day and say, well, that was a great life. It was a great life. And I don't think that's by accident that we all wonder those things. Uh, as we talked about last week, Jesus actually said that we were wired and gifted for greatness that he encouraged his followers and he encouraged us to actually pursue being great. The difference was, Jesus said, you got to understand I'm, I'm defining greatness. It's different than what you think it is. And the way you get to greatness is a different road, a different path than what's natural for all of us. And the way I explained it last week was simply this. Most of us live our lives with a metaphorical mirror in front of us. And we don't think of it this way. It's just natural to all of us. But we live our lives spending most of our time focused on ourselves. And every now and then I pay attention to you and I notice you and I kind of see what's going on in your world. But real quickly, I get drawn back to the image in the mirror. I am always front and center. And we all assume, don't we, that this is what's going to make us great. If I focus on me and on my life and on my goals and on my dreams and on my ambitions and making sure I have the family I want to have and I have the career I want to have and I end up getting to experience the things I want to experience and I've got my bucket list and we just assume as long as I keep myself primarily focused on me then I'm going to get to the end and I'm going to live the great life and yes, I pay attention to what's going on in your world and I see you every now and then and yeah, I'll step over and help you a little bit but I get distracted so easily by what's going on with me that I just find myself, we don't even realize we're distracted, this is just natural to us. It's human nature. We just find ourselves gravitating right back to the person in the mirror. And Jesus said, no, no, no. This is actually not the way to be great. You'll never be great doing this. That at some point, you and I have to learn to put down the mirror and to live life looking out a window. This is, in essence, what he taught. To live life looking out a window because when you look out a window, you notice the scenery. You notice 
what's all around. You notice what's out there. When I look out a window, I don't pay primary attention to me. Now, I'm, you know, you know this by looking out a window. You're in the picture. There's a reflection of you right there. But you're not front and center when you're looking out a window. When I'm looking out the window, I see you, and I see you, and I see you, and I see what's going on in your world, and I see what God's doing in your life, and I see what's happening over there, and then I see my place in the middle of it. And Jesus said, this is actually how you figure out how to be great. Once it's not about you, then you'll see what to do. But as long as it's about you, your purpose will remain just beyond you. As long as it's about you, you will miss God's purpose for you. And so I left you last week, if you were here, I left you last week with this challenge of not necessarily to try to do anything differently, although I hope you did, but at least to consider as you went through your week how you would respond differently, how you would live differently, what you would do differently if you looked out the window more and you put down the mirror and looked in the mirror a little less. Now, if you did that, you found how incredibly hard it is to keep the mirror down, didn't you? Because everything about us just tends to gravitate back to ourselves. It's so hard to live life looking out this window. And it, you might find it encouraging to know that Jesus' closest friends had the same struggle. The people who followed him in the first century, they had the same struggle. As a matter of fact, they were constantly going back to looking in the mirror. And he was constantly having conversations with them saying, no, 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 you got to lay it down. you got to look out the window. you got to lay it down. you got to pursue being great in an entirely different way. And he would have these conversations over and over, and they wouldn't get it. They wouldn't understand it. And part of the reason they didn't understand it is because they had bought into what we all buy into, this idea that prominence is a path to greatness. How are you to find prominence for you? That if I have these things, or I make this much money, or I get to this point in my career, or I know these kinds of people, or I'm married to this kind of person, or I have these kids, you know, whatever, however you define prominence, that once you get those things settled in your own life, that you're going to be great. And they thought that too. As a matter of fact, they were under the illusion, like all the Jewish people were, that when the Messiah came one day, that he was going to overthrow the Roman occupying force in Israel at the time, and that that Messiah wasn't just going to set up a kingdom in Israel, he was going to set up a worldwide kingdom. He was, it was going to be world domination. He was going to rule the world forever. And these people who were Jesus' closest friends had moments, if you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you'll see this. They had moments where they were certain he was the Messiah. They had moments where because of the way he acted or things he said, they thought, surely he's not. And they would go back and forth, back and forth. But it was the hope that they had that he was the Messiah and he was going to set up this earthly kingdom that kept them following him through all the hard times they went through. But it's also this belief that he was going to set up this kingdom, and they thought, this is our ticket straight to the top. This is how we're going to be great. This is why we're staying close to him. If he rules the world, we'll be right next to him. It was that kind of belief and that kind of assumption that they'll be great one day that way that caused them to miss everything he tried to teach them until they finally realized his kingdom was not the kind of kingdom they were talking about. So last week, if you were with us, we talked about this passage where James and John, two of his closest friends, are pulling Jesus aside. He's just told them he's, oh, he's about to die, and they pull him aside. And all they can think about is he's about to set up his kingdom. It's the, it's the start of what turned out to be one of the most extraordinary weeks of Jesus' ministry. He'd been in a little town called Bethany. He'd healed a, a man, or raised a man from the dead, rather, who'd been dead for three days. His name was Lazarus. He called him out of the tomb. So many people had seen it. There were eyewitnesses. It was unbelievable, but it was undeniable. And so all these people start to believe, well, that's the Messiah. You and I would too if we saw somebody do that, if we'd been in their shoes. So they believe that. They assume that. They begin to follow. These large crowds gather. He's got all this momentum. And as they're, way on, as they're on their way to Jerusalem, James and John are saying, hey, Jesus, can we have the top two positions next to you? 
when you set up your kingdom. And it turns into a big argument among all of his friends. And Jesus has to sit them down and try to, you know, explain to them, no, 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 that's not how it works. But they don't get it. They don't understand it. They go on through the week. They get to Jerusalem, and all these people are lying in the streets, and they're laying their coats, and they're laying palm branches. We call it Palm Sunday now. We celebrate that in a lot of churches. But they're laying all their coats and palm branches on the path, and Jesus rides on a donkey into Jerusalem. And all these people are cheering. They think the Messiah has arrived because of what's happened in Bethany. But a few days later, on the night of his arrest, Jesus is sitting in an upper room of a person's home, and he's having dinner, what they called a Passover meal, with his closest friends, the 12 of them. And Jesus knows, this is so interesting, Jesus knows, I've been trying to get through to them, they've got to live their lives a different way, they've got to put out a mirror and look out the window, and they just can't get it, because they're so hung up on prominence as a path to greatness. So he decides, I'm not just going to tell them again, I'm not just going to say something. I'm going to try to show them one more time. And I'm going to try to show them what I mean in such a way that it will mark them and it will change them forever. And John, who was one of the friends in the room, records for us this conversation and records for us what Jesus does, how this unfolds, just a couple hours before his arrest. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, or you believe the Bible's true or not, I just find this fascinating. I find it fascinating that we actually have a record of what went on behind the scenes just hours before Jesus' arrest. John was in the room, whether you believe all the other stuff or not. I mean, this is fascinating just to know, here's some history for us. John says, I want to explain to you exactly what took place. Exactly what Jesus did that helped us finally see. we got to put out a mirror. we got to look out a window. Because it's not about us. So, here's how he begins in John 13. He says, it was just before the Passover festival, so there were... Hundreds of thousands probably, a couple hundred thousand people in Jerusalem. And Jesus knew, John says, that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. In other words, John says, okay, looking back, we didn't connect all these dots at the time, but looking back, we realized he was sitting in that room and he knew exactly what was about to happen. He knew about his arrest, he knew about the beatings, he knew about the torturing, he knew about the ultimate execution on a Roman cross, like he knew it was all coming. He knew exactly how it was going to all unfold. So what would be on your mind if you were in his shoes? What, What would you do if you knew death awaited you? Well, here's what John says Jesus did. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or another way to say this is he showed them the full extent of his love. John said, okay, in that moment he decided, I'm not just going to talk to him again about put down the mirror, live looking out the window. I'm actually going to show him what it looks like. And I'm going to try to demonstrate this to them in such a powerful way that it will mark them and it will change them forever. And while, as you'll see in a minute, they didn't fully understand the impact of it in that moment. On the other side of the resurrection, they got it. And these 12 guys, these friends of his, they were never the same again. So, John goes on, he gives us a little more context. He said, the evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, we don't know what Jesus is about to do yet, but isn't there something in all of us that goes, okay, if he's going to show them the full extent of his love, he's not going to do that to Judas. Like, he knows he's about to be betrayed by Judas. Surely, he's not going to love his enemy. Just hold on to that thought. John continues, Jesus knew, he says, that the Father had put all things under his power, and they had come from God, and he was returning to God. Now let me hit pause right here. 
Because before John decides to describe to us what Jesus did in this moment, John wants us to understand why he did it. John said, you've got to understand, the reason Jesus was able to love us the way he loved us that night was because he was 100% secure in his place and his purpose. Jesus was 100% secure in who he was and in whose he was. And that security in his identity is what allowed him to love and to serve, to live his life looking out the window, even in the last moments before his arrest. Now, here's why that's so important for you and me. I don't, don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but I don't want you to miss it. It's important because the depth at which you can love is always determined by the extent to which you are secure. The depth at which you can love someone is always determined by the extent to which you are secure. In other words, insecure people can never fully love others. You just can't. Insecure people, it is impossible if you have insecurity, it is impossible for you to love people the way Jesus loved people. Because what happens when we have insecurity? Insecurity always puts the mirror right in front of you. Insecurity always pulls your focus right back to the mirror. You're going, no, no, no. People who live with a mirror in front of them, those are the arrogant people. Those are the egotistical people. Okay, I get it. That's not the only people who live with a mirror in front of them. People who are insecure do the same thing. Because you begin to serve or you think about helping or you think about loving somebody in a certain way and then you begin to question yourself and, oh, maybe I don't have what it takes. And what happened? Your, your focus just got pulled right back to you. Well, what would they think about me? Your focus just gets pulled right back to you. Well, I'm not sure I've got what it takes. And your focus gets pulled right back to you. You can never love people fully when you're insecure because insecurity is just another form of self-centeredness. Insecurity is just another way that we pull the focus right back to us and put a mirror right in front of us. And we miss the wonderland of purpose that God has all around us. Jesus, John says, he was able to do what I'm about to describe for you precisely because he was fully secure in his identity. He was fully secure in who he was and in whose he was. And then John begins to describe for us what takes place in the room that night. He says, so, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, that doesn't sound very dramatic to us, but it was extraordinarily dramatic to them. And here's why. This idea of when someone walked into a home of washing their feet, it was a common practice in first century Palestine. And the reason why was this. They traveled on dirt roads. But humans weren't the only ones who traveled on dirt roads. Cattle traveled on those same roads. Sheep traveled on those same roads. Horses, donkeys traveled on those same roads. And being as tactful as I can be, if you've ever, you know, followed horses in a parade, you know exactly what ends up on those roads, right? So they would travel in their sandals or in their bare feet. And that dirt wouldn't just be dirt. That dirt would be a mix of dirt and dung. And so whenever you showed up at somebody's house, it was so much filth and there was so much uh, stench and... It was just so unhealthy. So what they would do is they would take oftentimes a slave or if not a slave, a servant. They would have someone who was, they considered socially inferior at the bottom of the ladder, so to speak. And people would often have those pe folks positioned at the door. And as people walked in, they would stop. And that servant or that slave, they would wash the feet of those people and clean all the dirt, all the dung off their feet. And then they would proceed on into the house. So apparently this night, as Jesus and his friends show up at this home, whoever owned the home had nobody at the door. And they noticed, there's no doubt they noticed this. 
And there's no doubt that in the minds of the disciples, they all began to think, well, who's going to clean our feet? Well, it's not going to be me. Well, it's not going to be me. Well, it's not going to be me. And they all just very quietly walk right past and go into the room and sit down. Because none of them, none of them, are secure enough to put themselves in the position of someone they would consider socially inferior. None of them are secure enough to put themselves in the position of a servant. And so as they're sitting around the table and they watch Jesus stand up and they watch him go over and grab a basin and fill it with water and take off his outer garment and put a towel around his waist and start walking towards them, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this had to be shocking to them. It had to be shocking to them. Matter of fact, we know how they respond because Peter, if you know much about the story of Jesus' life, Peter always spoke up and usually put his foot in his mouth, but he didn't mind telling people what he thought. And Peter's the first to protest and say, no, 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 this isn't right. Here's what John says happens. Jesus came to Simon Peter, probably first, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Like, no, 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 you can't do this. This, this, is, this is so degrading, so demeaning. There's no way you, of all people, should be doing this. I shouldn't be doing it either, but you definitely shouldn't be doing it. And Jesus replied, Peter, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand, which is, just feels like the comment he made all the time to them. Like, you guys don't get it. Hang on. One of these days it'll click with you. That's basically what he says. To which Peter says, no, no, no. You, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. Now, this was Jesus' way of saying, Peter, you still don't get it. You still don't get it. We just talked about this a week ago. I told you prominence is not the path to greatness. I told you prominence is not the path to significance. But you're still thinking it is. It's why you walked right by that basin of water and you weren't willing to pause and to wash the feet of all your friends. Because you are hung up on prominence. You're hung up on position. You're hung up on status. You're hung up on yourself. You're still living life with a mirror right in front of you. And we talked about all this. You're still, in essence, you were arguing then about who was going to have the best seats in my kingdom, and it's not even the way that kingdom works. But you were arguing about all that then, and you're still acting that way. So in essence, Jesus says, listen, I'm about to do something for you that demonstrates exactly what I taught you last week. Now, if you weren't with us last Sunday, we read this conversation Jesus had where he taught them this. Let me just read it to you again real quickly. Here's what Jesus had told them just seven days before. Jesus had called them together when they were arguing about who would have the best seats in the kingdom. And he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, Jesus said, hey, you know how it works in our world. The more power you have, the more position you have, the more status you have, the more prominence you have, the more people serve you. you naturally, people don't tend to serve others with their power and prominence. They want to be served. Everything revolves around them. It's all for their benefit. And then Jesus uttered these four words to those guys. Not so with you. You're going to follow me. That's not how we're going to work. You're ever going to have any power or influence in your hands? You're never to do it that way. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then Jesus adds this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, I just want you to pay attention because I'm living my entire life in front of you, putting down a mirror, looking out a window, and focusing on the wonderland of purpose all around me. I'm living my entire life not focused on you. I'm focused on the you beside you. This is how you should live. Don't focus on you. You focus on the you beside you, and in the process of focusing on the you beside you, you will find the purpose in the life God created you to live. But he knew they weren't getting it. 
And so there in that room, he says, Peter, you got to pay attention. You're not going to figure it out now, but eventually I know you're going to connect these dots. I'm going to show you exactly what it looks like. And he washes Peter's feet. And then he washes James' feet. And then he washes Andrew's feet. And then he washes John's feet. And then he washes Matthew's feet. And Bartholomew's feet. And Thomas's feet. And Simon the Zealot's feet. And Judas' feet. Judas. He, I mean, he knows he's about to be betrayed. It doesn't matter. He's going to love him anyway. And when he gets done... He carries that basin back over and he sits it down and he cleans himself up and he takes his towel off and he puts his outer garment back on and he goes and sits down at the table. And he looks at these 12 guys and he says this, Do you understand what I've done for you? To which they went, Nope, we don't get it. Nope, that was very demeaning and that was very degrading and you of all people shouldn't be doing this, Jesus, because you're greater than all of us. Jesus says, Okay, I'll... You're right, you're right. He goes on. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. You think I'm great. And rightly so, for that is what I am. I am who you think I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And then he says this, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. You want to be great. You want to figure out your purpose in life. You want to make a difference with your life. You want to get to the end of your life and not just die and disappear, but have a legacy that lives on beyond you. Jesus says, I want you to be great. I want you to be first. Nothing wrong with that. But you don't get there living your life looking in the mirror, focusing on you and chasing your plans and your dreams and trying to accomplish all your goals. You get there when you put down the mirror, when you look out the window, when you're not focused on you, but you're focused on the you beside you. Here's what Jesus was demonstrating for them. What he was trying to help them understand was this, that purpose is always found across the border of what's in it for me. Don't miss this. Your purpose is always found across the border of what is in this for me. As long as you live in the world and the borders of what's in it for me, you will miss the reason God put you on this earth. And you will miss what it means to truly be great. You have got to step across the border into what's in it for them you got to step across the border and start looking out the window you got to step across the border and start figuring out how to put the needs and interest of other people before your own because prominence is not the path to greatness purpose is being served is not what makes you significant serving is actually the path to significance and if you spend your whole life making it primarily about whatever you've got on your bucket list, the places you want to go, the amount of money you want to have in the bank, the career you want to have, the degree you want to get, the kind of person you want to marry, the kind of popularity you want to have, the kind of fame, whatever it is for you that you're chasing, it's going to leave you empty, and it's going to leave you unsatisfied. Those kind, that kind of satisfaction and significance just doesn't last very long. It wears off quickly. If you want to find greatness... If you want to find purpose, it is found across the border of what's in it for me. It's when you begin to live your life looking out the window at the wonderland of purpose all around you. Once it's not about you, then you can see clearly God's purpose for you. Once it's not about you, then the view changes entirely and you begin to understand why you are here to begin 
with. But this is what's so hard. When you get to the end of you, you're on the edge of greatness. If you can just get to the end of you, you're on the edge of greatness. But you got to step across the line, across the border of what's in it for me. That is what Jesus was demonstrating to them and to us on that night, just hours before his death. He wanted to do something that was so tangible they would never, ever, ever forget it. And they would love that way for the rest of their lives. And so John tells us, he continued on, and he said, Very truly I tell you, no servant's greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. I know you don't want to do this, but he says, come on, come on. If I'm doing it, you, you can't argue you shouldn't do it. I'm setting the example. He says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You'd be blessed if you do them. Now, if we could be honest for just a second, don't you know, come on, come on. Don't you know purpose is a path to greatness? Don't you know purpose is always found on the other side, across the border of what's in it for me? Don't you know that? You don't really consider anybody great who lived their whole lives focused on themselves. The people you consider great are the people who have done this. Don't you know that when you live your life with a mirror in front of you and you're just chasing all your dreams, don't you know that it is extraordinarily exhilarating for a little bit and then it wears off and it's unfulfilling? You know that because you've already tried it. So have I. Don't you know there's got to be more to life than just checking off those things? And there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but don't you know there's got to be more to life than that? Don't you know? You, you already know. Come on. You, you know if you get to the end of your life and all you've done is spent your life focused on you, that you're going to have nothing to show for your life but you. Don't you know you're going to get to the end and it's going to be a bit disappointing? I mean, come on, you already know you are too small a purpose to live for. So why haven't you crossed the border of what's in it for me into the wonderland of purpose that God has for you? Why haven't you done that? Because that is hard to do. You know, but that's hard to do. And the difference between people who live great lives and those who don't the people who live meaningful lives and those who are unfulfilled, the people who live significant lives and those who don't, the difference is not in what they know. The difference is in the doing. It's in the doing. You've got to choose to do something. You've got to choose to step across the border of what's in it for me. You've got to choose to put down a mirror and live every day looking out a window. You've got to choose to push yourself aside for the benefit of somebody else. Here's how Jesus wrapped up this conversation with these guys, literally just a couple hours before his arrest. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. To which they all went, ah, oh, we got that, we do that. No, no, no. He says, not like that. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. He said, okay, you want to experience greatness. You want to experience purpose you got to learn to love the people around you the same way I have loved you. I just demonstrated it for you. I just put a towel around my waist, and I served you. And he could say, I'm about to demonstrate it for you. In just a few hours, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be flogged. 
I'm going to be tortured. Ultimately, I'm going to be executed. I'm going to die on a Roman cross to pay the penalty for all your sins. It's not my sins. It's all for you. It doesn't benefit me in any way. It's all for your benefit. And then I'm going to rise again. So by the end of this weekend, you're going to have seen the most powerful example possible of what it means to love someone deeply. Of what it means to live a life of purpose. So here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to go love the people around you with the exact same kind of sacrificial love that I am loving you with. And then he says this, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another the way I've loved you. In other words, Jesus said, the way people are going to know that you're a follower of mine is because you are one of the rare people in this world who have chosen to put down a mirror and to live their life looking out a window. Who've chosen to make it not about you because once it's not about you, you'll see what you should do with your life. It'll make perfect sense how you should love. That was his point. So that brings us to this. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? You and I, Jesus didn't leave us much wiggle room. We have to make a choice to either hold on to a mirror or to look out a window. Every day we wake up, this is our choice. Today, as we walk out of here, this is our choice. What are we going to do with it? Now, some of you, you're probably like me, you're thinking, okay, well, that's, that's great, Matt. That's all good. But I'm really interested in knowing like, my specific purpose and exactly what I should do because I think that's going to end up leading to a really good life. So can we get on to the specifics? Yeah, we're going to get on to the specifics next week. I'll help you figure out your specific purpose, why God put you on this earth. But I'm telling you, You will never get it, you will never experience it, and you will never live it if you don't have this as a foundation, if you don't take the first step to put down a mirror, to look out a window, and to step across the border of what's in it for me. You have to choose not to make it about you, but to make it about the you beside you. And I want to give you one simple question as we wrap up that's going to help you with that. When you walk out of here today, When you go to lunch, when you're hanging out with the family later, when you get up tomorrow and you go to class, go to work, whatever you got on your schedule tomorrow, here's the question you ought to ask. What does love require me? What does love require me? In other words, in this particular situation right here, if I were to love the way Jesus loved, if I were to do what Jesus would do, then what would it require me to do? I'm in this conversation What would it look like to love this person the way Jesus loves them in this conversation? I've got this conflict I'm trying to resolve. What would it look like to love that person the way Jesus does in the middle of this conflict? I've got this family thing and, you know, these relationships going. What would it look like to love these friends, to love this family, to love these people around me the way Jesus would? Like I'm interacting with them right now at work or in the classroom. If I were loving them like Jesus, what would I actually do? Not what would I think. What would I actually do in this moment? What would I hit pause on in my world so I could go make a difference in theirs? What would I hit pause on in my world because the most loving thing would be to step across there and serve them in some way that would make a profound impact possibly on them? What would it look like to love like Jesus with this money I have, with these possessions I have? Okay, I'm about to spend this money on this. That's fine, but if... If I were really loving people, if I were really choosing to do what Jesus did, 
then would I do anything differently with my money? Would I do anything differently with what I have? Would I do anything differently with my time? I mean, I got my schedule and I got my agenda and it's all mapped out and I got to go, go, go. And, you know, I don't have time to serve church and don't have time to help out over there with that deal. And I don't have time to go because I, I, mean, I know they got a lot going on, but I can't help them right now. I just, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. Okay, but just hit pause. What would love require you to do? Would love require you to hit pause on your busy agenda and your schedule to interrupt your plans to serve somebody else? Quite possibly so. See, here's the thing about this question. This is what's so annoying about this question. You don't always have clarity around exactly what your purpose is. You don't always have clarity around, you know, some of those questions we have. You almost always know the answer to this question, don't you? That's what's so annoying about it. Because when you ask this question, you're like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what I should do. And if you're thinking, well, I, that's my problem, I don't know, well, then here's what you should do. You should start reading the Gospels and the stories of Jesus' life because the more you read those, the more you'll understand what love requires of you if you were to love like Jesus loved. I mean, we almost always know the answer to this. The question is, what will we do with it? You don't need to know anymore. I don't need to know anymore. We actually need to do something. So, we're going to close today a little bit differently. Here's what we're going to do. In just a minute, the band's going to come out, and they're going to sing one final song. I don't, if you want to sing, it's fine, but I don't really want you to sing. I just want you to sit, okay? And here's why I want them to do this song. Because I want to create a moment for you. A moment where you pause and you reflect. A moment where you wrestle with this question. What does love require of you? And what are you going to do because of it? Because I'm telling you, as much as you want to live a life that's great and purpose and fulfillment and all that's important, if you skip this step, if you refuse to develop the habit of putting down the mirror and live looking out the window, as long as it's about you, your purpose will remain just beyond you. As long as it's about you, you will miss God's purpose for you. So this is a pivotal moment if you want to know your purpose. This is a pivotal moment if you want your life to have significant meaning. You've got to decide, what am I going to do with this? So I want to encourage you to take these next few minutes during this last song and to reflect on that. And I hope what you'll choose is you will choose to take this moment to tell your Heavenly Father, I'm choosing a different path. I'm choosing a different purpose. I don't know what it looks like and I don't know where it's going to take me, but I'm going to trust you enough to believe you have my best interest at heart. And I'm gonna, I want to put down a mirror. I want to start living looking out a window. And God, I need your help. Maybe you're going to think about some specific situations where you need to do something. Not just think something. You need to walk out of here and do something because love requires it of you. I'm telling you, when you get to the end of yourself, this is so hard for us all, but when you get to the end of yourself... You get to the edge of greatness. You're bordering greatness. You just have to take a step across the border of what's in it for me. Let me pray for us. Father, first, I think we just want to pause and say thank you. Thank you for demonstrating this force. 
by sending your son. Jesus, thanks for stepping across the border, stepping into our world where you had nothing to gain and everything to lose. Thanks for modeling for us, for showing us exactly what it looks like to live a life of purpose and meaning and significance. And yet it's such a hard step for us to take to step across the border of what's in it for me. So over these next few moments, wherever we are in our faith journeys, whatever we believe, would you just help us to wrestle with this single truth of what does love require of me? Am I willing to go to the end of myself so I can be at the edge of something so much greater? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.